My name is Debbie Manning. I'm one of the pastors here at the table. And hey, we are in the season of Lent. You know, for those of us that grew up Presbyterian, I wasn't all that familiar with it. But you know, in the church season, we sort of tell the story of God. There's a very intentional rhythm to that, right? We have Advent and Christmas and Epiphany and Lent and Easter. Um, and then what we call ordinary times. And that's when we dive into the teachings of Jesus. But right now, we are in a season of Lent. Those 40 days that lead up to Easter, they mirror the 40 days that Jesus was in the wilderness. And it started with Ash Wednesday just a few years, a few years ago. A few weeks, it might be a long night, friends, hang in. Um, a few days ago, for those of you who were able to kind of fight the winter weather and get to an Ash Wednesday service, you know that Ash Wednesday really is a reminder of our own finitude. Did I say that right? I practiced it. Our own finitude. Ashes to ashes and dust to dust. From dust we were made and to dust we will return. And I really kind of love that because it's actually of a story of creation and a return to creation. A return to creation that reminds us of how we're connected. How we are all part of the same human family. And I think that it's in that connection that actually makes Lent such a meaningful season for all of us. Because as we walk to the cross together, we have an invitation. We have an invitation to practice spiritual honesty. I think it's a moment in the life of the church where we're actually called to tell the truth. And I think that's a beautiful thing. And you know what the truth is? The truth is that life is so, so beautiful. And life is so, so hard. And often we have some Lenten practices, right, that we do to sort of get into the season and connect with God and one another. And I have a brand new one. So Friday night, I was at a dance party. I was invited to a birthday party that was a dance party. Didn't know what to expect. It was about 20 women. But I'll tell you what ended up happening was really holy. And I feel like it's a beautiful way to start out Lent. Because the host of the party, before we got into the dancing, and I will say, we made Lizzo proud, even us 16 year olds. <laughs> but it was awesome. But before we started that, the host got up and she talked about some of the stories around the room because we didn't all know each other. They were from different areas of her life, from work and from college and from faith community and friends that go way back. But she talked about all the life that had happened last year. She talked about um, loss and broken relationship. And several of them had a close friend that had lost a three-month-old baby just a month ago. But then she talked about some of the joy that happened in the past year. Those that became parents, those that got new jobs, those that had a new relationship. And it was such a beautiful reminder of what we talk about here, about what Lynn talked about on his January 1st. That life is a gift to most the point. And that, you know what? It's beautiful and it's hard. And so before we started dancing, the host said, I just want to name, I just want to acknowledge the truth that this past year was really hard. She inserted a different word for really, but I won't say that right here. <laughs> but it's true. It's been a really hard year for a lot of people. And it's been a really beautiful year for a lot of people. But that brings us right here to this moment in Lent where we get to name that. Because every year when Lent comes around, we step into the part of the story 
where Jesus is on the downward spiral, as Kate Muller would say, he's coming to the end because what we know is going to happen in this last week of his life is that Jesus is going to be betrayed, he's going to suffer, and he's going to die. And that part of the story can sometimes be hard for us. But the reality is, is that it's in that part of the story and the suffering and the pain that we meet Jesus in a really powerful and meaningful way. And that Jesus meets us there too. And while I think Lent always asks the question of what it means that Jesus is the Christ, I think the other part of that question is, what does my life look like? What is the state of my being? What is the state of our world? And Lent ends up being about self-examination and about discipleship. Discipleship isn't a word that we use very much here at the table because I think it's loaded. I think for some people that has a bad connotation, but I want us to think of discipleship as this. Following the ways of Jesus as students of love and justice. Because that's what the discipleship that Jesus calls us to is all about. So ultimately, Lent does have this theme of discipleship. And as we go to the cross together and through to the resurrection, we ask ourselves those questions that Jesus forced on the disciples. How is it that we are living our life faithfully to the vision of the kingdom of God? How are we challenging ourselves the way Jesus challenged the disciples in those times? So over the next 40 days, Matt and I and our team, we are inviting you into the last week of Jesus' life. For the next six Sundays, maybe, we will be taking a day in the last week, let's see if I can say this right, of Jesus' life. Holy Week. The Passion. And we know that Passion comes from the, has the root word that's Latin, passio, which means suffering. But I like to think about it, too, like, what was Jesus' passion? Because whatever Jesus' passion was, that's what our passion is supposed to be, is we live out our lives. So we're in Mark, which is the earliest gospel writer. He is the first narrative account, written about 40 years after Jesus' last week on earth. It kind of coincided with the destruction of the temple, actually. And it was Mark and Mark alone that chronicled Jesus' last week, day by day, and in some points, even hour by hour. So we're in the first day of the week, last week of Jesus' life, which we all commonly know as Palm Sunday. Of course, it's not Palm Sunday today. But we're going to talk about Jesus entering Jerusalem. This is super important to the story, is to have a little understanding of Jerusalem at the time. Jerusalem, the holy city, the city of God, the city of hope. That's where the temple was, where all life happened for the Israelites. But over time, Jerusalem becomes this home to monarchy and aristocracy and wealth and power. And it becomes the center of injustice and betrayal of everything that God had planned for his people. God's passion for justice is replaced by human injustice. And what happens to Jerusalem is it becomes the center of a domination system. Now that's really common, actually. Domination systems were really common in ancient times. And actually, as I explained briefly what it is, I think we see threads of that in the world today. And here's what marked the domination system. Political oppression, so many ruled by a few, 
with the wealthy and the elite, and ordinary people didn't have any voice in shaping the world. Economic exploita exploitation, almost all the wealth, they were an agrarian society, was through agriculture, but it was the few wealthy that reaped all the wealth and the benefits from that. And religious legitimation, musician, thank you. Thank you, I always look over here to the word Smiths. So the idea that the king ruled was divine. The social order reflected that the will of God. And all those things kept the wealthy in power. And the Jewish, the leaders, the priests, they were part of, they, they were collaborators to make that all happen. And why this is important to know is that that form of social system is exactly what Jesus was confronting when he entered into Jerusalem on that day. So on that day, there were two processions into the city. We have Jesus coming in from the east, Pontius Pilate coming in from the west, and Jesus deliberately counters what's happening on the west side of town. Because as that imperial empire walks into town, I should say marches into town, they're holding up power and glory and violence. Now the imperial procession would have been really familiar to first century Jews because any time there was a Jewish festival, whoever was the governor at the time came back into town. Most of them lived on the sea, uh, Caesarea, but they came back in not out of some reverence, empathetic reverence for the Jewish people, but to make sure no trouble happened during that time. So here we are, the tensions are really, really high. Pontius Pilate, he makes his appearance to make sure that the Jews know who's in charge. And it's Rome that's in charge. Jesus enters on the other side. We know that story, right? He instructs a couple of disciples to go into town, get some donkeys, they lay a cloak on it, and here we are in Mark, chapter 11, verse 8. <laughs> Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. It's a story that I think many of us know well, right? The triumphal entry. Jesus riding in on a donkey and the people waving their palm branches. A victory parade. Because people saw Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah, the one that we're going to save them from all the oppression. We're going to free them. Some of us grew up, right, walking through sanctuaries ourselves, waving palm branches and singing, Hosanna, Hosanna. But what's meaningful to this story and more important is this is far more than a victory parade. There's so much more to this. This was a prearranged counter-procession, something that Jesus had planned in advance. And as Jesus approaches the city, it actually looks far more like a political demonstration than anything else. So on a spring day in the year 30, there's two processions going on. The beginning of the week of Passover, the most sacred week of the entire Jewish year, 
One was a peasant procession, the other imperial. One from the east, Jesus on a donkey, riding down the Mount of Olives, cheered on by his followers, with a message about the kingdom of God. A message that was completely different than they understood at those times. And on the opposite side of town from the west, Pontius Pilate is coming in, the Roman governor. He sits atop his warhouse horse, surrounded by soldiers, clanging drums, marching to the beat of those drums. And he proclaims the power of empire. And the two processions, what they do is they embody the central conflict of the week that actually is going to lead to the crucifixion of Jesus. So Jesus, this long-awaited king, he comes down the mountain and he's riding on a donkey. Now, the people at that time, the Jewish people, would have been familiar with that because that was prophesied by Zechariah that he would be coming on a donkey, so that wouldn't have been surprising. But I think the thing that was hard for everyone to get their head around was that a donkey in those days was noble. But importantly, the donkey was a beast of peace. In war, the kings, they rode horses. But in peacetime, they rode donkeys. So the fact that Jesus rode down on a donkey was more than a sign of humility. It was a sign that he was coming as the king of peace. He stands in the place that God's warrior would have stood, and he rides on the symbol of peace with the spirit of peace, for the sake of peace, in a place that no, knew no peace. And it's there that he stops to weep. He gets to the spot on the Mount of Olives where tears are actually expected, but not like this. Not these kind of tears. Because on the Mount of Olives in that spot was a place that many pilgrims came to. And they would stop in the spot and they would tears would come and they would weep because of the beauty of what they could see. They'd weep because they made it. They made it to this holy, holy spot. And they could look out at the beautiful city. But when Jesus comes to this place, his tears aren't tears of looking out at the beauty. They're tears of looking at the brutality. The tears are not tears at this beautiful vision, but they're tears because of its violence. And where the people expected this cry of a warrior, they receive instead a Messiah who cries because of the pain and the suffering that he sees of his people. And Jesus refuses. He refuses to make the brutal truth of empire palatable to people. In Luke 19, it says this, as he, preached, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. This isn't what the coming Messiah is supposed to do. He's supposed to beat his chest, raise his fist, fire his gun, say, we got this. He's not supposed to fall on his knees and weep. But that's exactly what Jesus does. 
And for the people of Israel, that's not the king they want. And what they don't understand is that is exactly the leader that they need. And in doing so, all the people cheering that Jesus is the Messiah on Sunday and Friday will be screaming for his death. And it's out of fidelity to God, fidelity to non, the nonviolent way of, of love, that Jesus ends up crucified on a cross. And it kind of makes you think about if Jesus really didn't die so much for our sins as much as he dies from our sins, because of our sins. And after three days, when he gets back up, he exposes the weakness of all of the weaponry. And even then, he refuses to fight back. You know, it's, it's so interesting when you study this and you look back at this and then you realize that these things go on today, they just look a little bit different. Because in the age we live in, and the communities we live in, and the country and the world we live in, these things continue to go on. Mass shootings. I was thinking about some of our children that have to go through um, protocol to hide in their desks in case there's a shooting. I was thinking about people that are black and brown and how afraid they have to be of law enforcement in our communities in this country. That they lose their lives. I was thinking about the recent anti-Semitic, anti-LGBTQ hatred and violence that goes on in our country. And I think if we look at this text, it has to ask us each the question, where do we stand? How do we speak up? Are we willing, do we have the courage to lay down our own weapons? Because I think it's clear now more than ever that Jesus may not be the king that we all want, but he is the king that we absolutely need. And so for me, as I'm looking at this text and thinking about this first day of the last week and Jesus entering Jerusalem, I'm thinking, how does that pertain to us? And what I'd say is that I think for us there are two ways that we enter the city. We can enter the city from the east or the west. We can enter the city in the way of Pilate or the way of Jesus. There are two ways that we can enter a conversation. There are two ways that we can treat our employees or our colleagues. There are two ways that we can deal with conflict in our relationships, whether that's our marriage or our family or with our friends. There are two ways that we can deal with grief and loss and pain and suffering. There are always two ways. And we can come from it from the west, or we can come from it from the, from the east. Jesus' procession embodied an alternative vision, the kingdom of God. And the contrast between empire and kingdom of God is not only central to the gospel of Mark, that's sort of the theme of Mark, that is at the core of who we are as followers of Jesus. Which way are we going to go? And for Mark, the message is about the kingdom of God and the way, the path, 
the road. Which way are we going to go? Because you know what? If we follow Jesus on the road, on the way, we're following him to Jerusalem. And we know what happens in Jerusalem. Because Jerusalem is going to be a place of confrontation, a place of suffering, a place of death, a place of resurrection. And it all lands here. That if we're going to answer the call to discipleship, we've got to pick up the cross. And this cross that Mark's time became a symbol of the way, of transformation. Mark 8 says this, Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples, and he said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. And maybe that's the question of Lent. We all know what the journey to Jerusalem entails. Do we choose that way, that path, to pick up the cross? Amy Jill Levine, who's a theologian, a professor, an author, a writer, from her book, The Passion of Jesus, she says this about taking up the cross. It meant being willing to accept hardships and loss, humiliation and imprisonment, even death in order to proclaim a vision for a better world, a divine kingdom, and then work for it. The triumphal entry cannot be separated from the cross, and the cross cannot be separated from the call of justice, and that call cannot be separated from risk, personal, professional, permanent. The story about the last days of Jesus should challenge us, should convict us, should continue to change us, should help us shed old ways. Mark's gospel, as much as it did today, remains, to, or yesterday remains today, a radical call to discipleship. What do we stand for and who do we stand with? You know, um, as I think about Lent, as I think about the call to discipleship, as I think about this interconnectedness we all have as human beings, I think that's an important part of this. The realization of our responsibility, our call to one another, being part of humanity. And when we're self doing the self-examination about what state we're at right now, what state the world's at right now, I think we have to ask the question, are we complicit in the harming of the others? And world, in the world, are we complicit in part of the healing? There are two processions. Which one are we going to be? You know, Lent, um, Lent is the both and of hard, of pain, of suffering, of death, but it's also the hope and the beauty that death doesn't have the final word, that death is not, won't be the defining truth about any of us, and that someday we'll be freed. We will be freed from the limitations of our very human lives. But first, Jesus suffers and dies. 
walks with us. And right in the middle of all that, we get to glimpse resurrection. I think that's enough. I'm going to end with a blessing from Kate Bowler. There's a bunch of us that meet every other Monday afternoon. We're doing Kate Bowler's Lenten devotional. It's wonderful and amazing. But I will end our time with this. Oh God, you are interrupting me with eternity. And I'm not sure I'm ready. Take hold of time and order it once again. Let me keep peace with you. On this Palm Sunday, time is marked as one small donkey plods toward Jerusalem. One with a face set like flint, feet grazing the ground, walks forward toward the eastern of all sorrow. Not in the power of horses and swift victory, but in small, steady steps toward the mystery that through suffering healing comes. That through shame, dignity is restored. That through the cross, powers are disarmed. And death done away with forever. Blessed are those walking forward into the great small work they do. In hospitals, homes, grocery stores. Classroom, churches, and cubicles. And blessed we are joining the crowds, waving palm branches to shout ourselves hoarse, Hosanna, save us, save the world. God have mercy, Christ have mercy, Spirit have mercy. Amen. Jesus came as the king that they needed, not the king that they wanted or were looking for. Um, as Debbie was talking, I was reminded of a, uh, a retreat that our community took. This is a few years ago now, and um, the speaker on that retreat um, said something, and it has stuck with me ever since. This was Greg Boyd, Pastor Greg Boyd, and he said, church should be us and them with no them. And it stuck with me, right? Like, ha ha, yeah, that sounds great. You know how hard it is to live that out? Jesus comes as the king of the, of the church of the us and them with no them. And I don't find that easy or palatable at all. And I don't know if you're like me in that, but that's really challenging for me. Um, especially when we can look around our community and we see the divides, we see the us and them. Um, and I think too, the challenge here is to accept that Jesus comes as the king not that we want, or not that we find easy to take, but the king that we need. And I was thinking that uh, in, in much the same way, Jesus talks the night before he died. He talked with his disciples about this new covenant, and that was, that was new. Because the Jews were looking for somebody to come who were going to restore the Jews to their rightful place of power, and that's not what Jesus came to do. He said, this is the, the, the cup of, of my blood, it's the new covenant, and it's for everyone. Not just for the people who used to call themselves God's people, but for all people, Jews and Gentiles alike. And that... That was really new as well. So as we kind of turn our hearts to this moment in our service where we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper together, I would invite you to remember that um, on the night before Jesus died, Jesus was gathered with his friends, and he took the bread, and he gave thanks to his Father, and he broke it. And he said, whenever you eat this, remember me. And in the same way, he poured wine into the cup, and he said, this is the blood of the new covenant, and it's poured out for every single one of you. 
all of you know, know that, all of us, do this in remembrance of me. And so that's what we do when we gather here on Sunday nights. We remember the call to us, to each other, that we are to be a place of all us and know them. So the way our, that we do this is we'll make one line here down the middle. You'll come forward, receive your gluten-free bread, all of it's gluten-free. Hear the words of the body of Christ broken for you as you dip it into the cup. This is the blood of Christ shed for you. Um, and then you can return to your seats. You can come up whenever you feel like during the next music set. Would you stand with me, though? We are going to say the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray, saying, Our God, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Well, we invite each and every one of you to our community meal, which is right out here, right after the service. Everyone's welcome. We've got pasta and salads and dessert. Our community team put it together, and we would love to have you. Come and visit with people in the community, make new friends, meet new people. Um, it's always so much fun to share our meal and some conversation. Um, my hope and prayer for everyone here is that this Lent season might just look and feel a little different. That you might experience God in a way that just continues to change you in the likeness of Christ. So with that, please hold your hands out for our benediction. No matter who you are or what you've done, no matter what you've lost or who you love, no matter where you've been or the places that you've stayed, you always have a place at the table because you are the loved child of God and beloved you belong. Go in peace, everyone, and I hope you join us out here.